Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us at tomballbible.church. Well, turn with me to Romans 9. I want to invite you to turn to Romans 9. We're going to be picking up in verse 22. But before we do, we need to explain where we are. If you're just joining us this morning, if you're visiting us, we've been in a series going through Romans throughout the past year, for about all of 2018. And what we did was we just recently finished 1 through 8. And 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 320 is the condemnation section. And in that section, we saw that we are absolutely morally incapable of good, of anything, of coming to God on our own, that we are depraved sinners. And then in chapter 3, 21, through all of chapter 5, all 4 and 5, we saw that we are justified by faith, that Christ came as our substitute to atone for our sins so that we might have the righteousness of God placed upon us through his vicarious action on our behalf. We saw that, that he made propitiation for us. He placated God's wrath on our behalf. And that was the justification section. And then in chapter 6, 7, and 8, we saw the sanctification section, that, that we're baptized in Christ. But that doesn't mean, though, that sin goes away forever, that we're saved from the power and the penalty of sin, but not the presence. So we still, we saw in chapter 7, we're struggling with this. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That, that I, I'm not doing the things I want to do, and I'm doing the things I don't want to do. So he needs help in that. So we saw in chapter 8 that we need to be killing sin or it will be killing us. Put to death the deeds of the flesh that we are engaged in spiritual warfare against our own flesh. And that is what we are to do forever. But we saw at the end of chapter 8 that forever is coming and forever is assured to those who are in Christ Jesus that no one can separate those who are in the love of Christ from the love of Christ. We saw that great crescendo of the doctrinal section of Romans 1 through 8. But chapter 9 begins a new section, not out of the blue. It's following the same argument because the end of chapter 8 says that no one can be separated from the love of Christ. But then you might go, if you're an astute person, you've been paying attention and you have a Bible and you're looking at all your Old Testament, and you go, well, it looks like Israel has been separated from God. So what's the deal with them? How do they fit with this whole thing? I understand what you just explained to all to me about uh, salvation by faith alone, that Christ paid the price, that I could not do anything, and, and then now I'm supposed to walk in that. But what about them? And what about us? So Paul says, well, uh, first of all, I think you're misunderstanding what the Bible has been saying throughout the entire Old Testament about who is Israel? Who are God's chosen people? It's not just everybody with a Jewish last name. It's those whom God has chosen because it does not depend upon the man who wills or upon the man who exerts himself, human will or human exertion, but upon God who has mercy. And then that then spills out to all people everywhere because God saves people the same way and has saved all people the same way throughout all of history and across all borders. And we saw that in chapter 9, 1 through 23, the doctrine of election which is why we did a little foray over into that and looking at the whole scriptures talking about that. But now as we jump back into chapter 9, we come into the flow of the argument, but here's where we are. We're still left. Okay, after it, Paul explains doctrine of election and says it's not up to human will or human exertion, God who has mercy. He has a mercy whom he will have mercy, his compassion on whom he has compassion. But okay, I, I, so I see that now, but, but what is this deal with the Jews and the Gentiles? 
Why, why is there a difference? Or is there a difference? What's, what's, the, what's the separation there? And why does it seem like they aren't in the grace of God? At least in the majority. Why is that? And then the bigger question that we're going to spend our time answering this morning that Paul raises and then answers is this. Is Israel's unbelief inconsistent with God's plan of redemption? Is the fact that the majority of Jewish people do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, is that inconsistent? Is that a diversion from God's redemptive plan for the globe? we got to answer that. we got to wrestle with that, and we're going to learn significant truths along the way, but we got to get a running start. So go back to verse 22 in your Bibles in Romans 9. We're going to go back to the first complete sentence and get our head start running at verse 24. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? You see, in those two verses, what is God about? He's about making known three things, his wrath, his power, and the riches of his glory. That's what those verses say. That God is, that's what he's doing. And he's free to do that in any manner that he wishes. He is sovereign over creation. He is free to act however he wishes. We gotta get it into our brains that God did not run for the office of God. And he does not maintain his status as God by keeping his ever fluctuating voting block happy. He is God sovereignly and unquestionably. He's completely reigned to rule and rule as he sees fit because he's Lord over all. And he has seen fit to make known the riches of his glory by enduring the non-elect and preparing the elect beforehand to partake in that glory. And that reality is not limited to the nation of Israel because then we would have a problem. We would have God functioning one way with an ethnic people and then a different way with a non-ethnic people and saving them in two different ways. That would mean there's division in the mind of God. So God saves all people always in the same time because if he's sovereign over the eternal destinations of Ishmael and Isaac, of Jacob and Esau, as we saw earlier in Romans 9, of Pharaoh and Moses, then he's certainly sovereign over the eternal destinations of a Ugandan woman or a Russian man or anyone in between. So then we come to Paul being led to say the following in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, us meaning Christians, the church, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God desires to make known his wrath by the judgment of the non-elect and desires to make known his glory by the mercy to the elect. And this reality extends beyond the borders of ethnic Israel. That it's not just something that's contained in the Old Testament with Israel, that it's for all people. This is the reality of how God interacts with people everywhere. Not for us all. He said, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles is what it says. And that's a that reality that you and I are familiar with. That's all we've ever known. We haven't known anything. Anybody come from a Jewish synagogue? You grew up in a Gentile church, most likely, or you grew up in a Gentile word and then came into a Gentile church. This is all that you've ever known of the people of God is church in this way. But to somebody steeped into their Old Testament, particularly a Jewish person steeped into their Old Testament, this would seem to be new. It's not new, but it would seem to be new that these Gentiles are going to be included into this deal, but it's not. It's not new at all. 
Even though you could say, okay, well, I see in my Old Testament the, the people of God, Israel, blessing Gentiles or blessing non-Jewish people. So Naaman comes to Elisha and he gets healed from his leprosy. So that's a blessing upon a, a Gentile person. Or the queen of Sheba, she comes to Solomon, has these deep and profound questions. Solomon answers them according to the counsel of God and she's blessed and she goes back to her homeland with the truth of the God. So we see that blessing. But what we never see in the Old Testament is large populations of non-Jewish people coming into the flock of God. We don't see that. But that doesn't mean, as Paul's going to argue here, that that's not part of God's plan. In fact, it is part of God's plan. We're going to see that play out in a big way in chapters 10 and really in chapter 11 of Romans. That it is part of God's saving plan to include droves of Gentiles as his chosen. Paul goes on to verify that with an Old Testament passage. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, he being God, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Paul goes to a deep cut. He goes back to Hosea. Hosea 2 and Hosea 1. 2.23 and 1.10. And he mashes them together to make one reality. He uses the example of Hosea. And you need to know who Hosea was. Hosea was a Jewish prophet to the nation of Israel. And he had this odd command, unique command, never given to any other prophet except for Hosea, because he's living in this time where the the entire nation is committing essentially spiritual adultery against God. That If you have an ESV Bible, it says that they have committed whoredom against God. And what he's going to do is he's going to put forth a visible, physical illustration in the life of Hosea. He's going to say, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. Her name is Gomer, and I want you to have kids with her. So he does. This is going to be a living illustration of what the people of Israel are doing to, to God. It's what Gomer is going to do to Hosea. He has to live that out from him. He has three kids with this woman, Gomer, who is a prostitute. And the first one's name is Jezreel. The second one was named Loruhama. And now you may not have named your kid that, but you might want to name your kid that, where it says, I will show no mercy. The next kid, the third one, is Lo-Ami, which means, is translated to mean, not my people. Plenty of you want to say that to your own kids. You're not me. You're not mine. But you didn't do it. But God told Hosea to do it. And he does name those kids that. And he uses this example, this marriage and these children, as object lessons for the people of Israel. That though they live in open rebellion against God, and they continue to commit spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to the one you are wedded to God, that God will not put you out. That's how God does marriage. Not on a contract level, on a covenant level. I will not put you out though you commit adultery against me. And he uses that example. And he goes to the, the child that, that Hosea has called, you will, show, you will be shown no mercy. And he says, I'm going to show you mercy. And to the child that's named, you are not my people, I'm going to make you my people. Even though you weren't. And Paul takes that uniquely Jewish situation and then he brings it into our New Testament reality and applies it to us, the Gentiles. He's going to apply it to us that at one point we were not God's people. And that's true. In your ancestral tree, somewhere back there, there was a bunch of godless pagans. Some of you, it's pretty close back there. 
Some of you is pretty far down the line. But in a Jewish ancestral tree, back there somewhere, there's people following the one true God of the Bible. So while your, our ancestors, not yours, ours ancestors were running around as naked, godless heathens worshiping anything that they can think of in Europe or in Asia or in Africa, the Jewish ancestors, they were building a temple to the one true God according to the scriptures that were given to him, given to them from the very voice of God. Very different backgrounds. But eventually both of those groups were not, eventually back far enough, were not the people of God. There was one point where they weren't and one point where you weren't. Israel was not God's people and the New Testament church was non-existent. But just as God sovereignly chose Abraham out of the land of Ur to make a people, so he chooses Gentiles today. Both were at one point not his people, but became his people by his will. Tom Schreiner, the professor, a commentator, he wrote this. He said, in calling the Gentiles to salvation, God calls a sinful people to himself. Just as in saving Israel, he showed mercy to the undeserving. No one can presume on God's grace. In calling anyone to salvation, he shows undeserved mercy to those who were not his people. The fact that God extended his saving grace to people like you and me, non-Jewish Gentile people, that should drive us into the deepest of gratitudes for the rest of our lives. That he showed us that grace and welcomed us in to this reality. But what Paul's going to do now is going to shift off of the Gentiles specifically, return back to the nation of Israel in verse 27 and 28. When he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Isaiah is confirming this reality as well. So Isaiah is a prophet who's a contemporary of Hosea. Their ministries overlap. Isaiah is called a major prophet in the Old Testament because his book is super long. Hosea is called a minor prophet because his book is short. But they overlap and they have similar ministries. Uh, but what Isaiah is talking about here is that only a remnant, you see that? Verse 27, only a remnant of them will be saved, a portion of Israel. There's lots of people, but only some of them are going to be saved. As Isaiah quotes, as Paul quotes Isaiah saying that. And it's not because God's playing the odds. Just kind of figuring in like, well, there's only going to be some of them, I guess, probably. So, no, that's, that's, that's not it. God's not guessing that only a few people are going to be there or trying to figure out what percentage will actually end up being. No, he's sovereign over it. That's why he knows there's only going to be a remnant because he's sovereign over that whole exchange, that whole reality. But, but how do we know that? It's easy to say that. How do we know that? Well, that, we can be helped to answer that question by asking another question. What would happen, what would have happened if God had just left Israel alone in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, he's not interfering in their lives. He's not enacting his will. He's not guiding, directing, doing, sovereignly showing lordship over them. What would have happened to Israel? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted, so Isaiah again here is Isaiah 1 verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They get wiped off the face of the planet from fire and brimstone raining down from heaven. And it's because they were so rampant and debauched in sin that God chose to do that. 
And Isaiah says, we would have been like them if it wasn't for God. And how bad were they? Genesis 19 is the whole story. They're so bad that the only sin that they haven't committed is a sin with a new person. Have you thought about that? You read that story a lot of times. But what happens when those three men come, the three men that are actually angels, they're going to come to Lot and tell him, hey, you got to go. This is what's going to go on. And the, the men of Sodom are banging on Lot's door, commanding, demanding to send those three men out so that they might have intercourse with them. And you're like, okay, so wait a minute, wait a minute. This, this society is so bad that they've jumped out of, that their sexuality has jumped out of that which God has created between a man and a woman. And it's just, and now it's past even just serial adultery and sleeping with any man, any woman, like all that. Now you're even into rampant homosexuality that you're demanding these people to come out. And yet the people outside banging on the door, they're all committed to this sexual freedom, quote unquote freedom and mindset. Why don't they just, do that with each other because they've already done that. They've already exhausted it. The only sin they haven't committed yet is with new people. That's how rampant, that's how bad it's gotten. Sin is never done metastasizing. And that's what Paul says. That's what Israel ends up like with if God does not keep his promise to Abraham. Did you see that in verse 29? If the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, that's Abraham's promise. That word offspring is incredibly significant in your Bibles, specifically in your Old Testaments. You would be wise to read your Old Testament with an eye to that word offspring. Particularly if you have an ESV, the word offspring is there. In other translations, it's the word seed. But that concept is massive in the Old Testament. Who is the offspring? Because what is Abraham's original promise that he's given from God? What has he promised in Genesis 12? Land, blessing, and offspring. So the whole New Testament is, or the whole Bible is consumed with who is the offspring? We got it through Isaac, and then, okay, we see it down through Jacob, but then, no, who is this? And how many of the offspring? Or who's the one offspring? Which gets reiterated to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that it's going to come through David's family now. That the wide funnel of Abraham tightens around David. It's going to come through Judah. That's where the offspring is going to be. And then the offspring and the prophets starts being saying, this is who this Messiah is going to be. So the, the blessing and the land is kind of secondary to the thread of the offspring that goes throughout your whole Bible. Who is that? Who is the one offspring, singular? And who is the plural offspring? So Paul says, as he's quoting from Isaiah, that this promise to Abraham is kept and what Isaiah would later call a stump or a root of Jesse. The tree's cut down, but there's still a stump in the ground. And what God's going to do is he's going to make sure that there's going to be a faithful remnant of the Jews. There's always going to be a faithful remnant, that he's sovereignly keeping his promise that there will be an offspring who are his chosen people. So what are we saying then, Paul? Verse 30, what shall we say then? Paul's like, I'll tell you what I'm saying. Verse 30 goes on. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. That's what he's saying. He's saying in verse 30 that the Gentiles who were not seeking the righteousness of God, who were not trying to figure out how to be right with God, have obtained that. They've attained the thing that they have not sought. 
See, if you're a Christian today, meaning you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and thus in submitting unto his lordship forever, you're that way because somebody confronted you with the gospel at some point, whether it was your parents or a friend or a stranger or a pastor, somebody confronted you with the gospel. You were going along your way, doing what you wanted to do, and then somebody said, hey, everything you're doing is wrong, and everything that you believe is wrong. This is the gospel. This is the way of salvation. You weren't looking for it. Somebody brought it to you. Somebody came and told you, hey, you're a sinner, and that rightfully places you under the wrath of God, and you will incur judgment for eternity unless you can obtain the righteousness of God. And you can't do that on your own, but here's the good news. Somebody already did attain that righteousness, and that can be transferred to you. You can be robed in it if you'll place your faith in that person, and that person is the Son of God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Somebody came and told you that, and then you attained something you did not pursue, which is the righteousness of God. But the Jews are the opposite. You see that in verse 31? But Israel, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they thought pursuing would lead to righteousness. They did not succeed in reaching that law. See, see, here's what they were doing. They were chasing God's righteousness from Genesis 12 onward. They knew what the law said. They knew God was righteous and that he demanded adequate or equivalent righteousness from anybody who's going to be in his presence. They knew that and they understood that. They got that down in their minds, so they're hustling their hardest to achieve that level because all they have to do is read in Leviticus where God says, you shall be, you must be holy because I am holy. If you're going to be around me, you got to be holy. So they understood that. They were clear on that, that that's what God required, but they were not able to attain what they were pursuing. And it wasn't because, and we got to hear this, because we get this wrong all the time in our day and age, and it's particularly in churches like ours. They weren't wrong for trying to keep the law. That wasn't the problem. They had to keep the law. The covenant that they were under demanded keeping the law. If you don't obey this law, you will be cursed. If you do obey this law, you will be blessed. That wasn't the problem that they were trying to do that. The problem was that they thought that they could do that, that they could do that perfectly, and that they could do it on their own, keep the law, without any help, without any influence. That the law itself was not the problem. It was their hearts behind their efforts that they arrogantly believe that they are keeping the law well enough that God will be pleased to let us into heaven. That was the error. That was where they missed it. But we Gentiles, we're different. We, at some point, we didn't even know there was a God. We didn't believe that there was a God. And somewhere in our family history or even in our own personal history, we don't know how we got here or why we're here. We don't know the facts about morality. We're not pursuing anything noble. We're not pursuing anything godly on our own before we get saved. None of us are keeping the Mosaic law. We're not eating kosher. We're not stopping working on Saturdays. Yet here we are, robed in the righteousness of God, in here in a room, Tallball, Texas. How did we get here? See, the Jews had all the facts straight. They knew God's name was Yahweh. They weren't confused on whether there was a God or not. They knew where they came from. They knew that Yahweh had created heaven and earth. They were not confused about that either. And they knew that they needed a morality for anything to function at all. They knew that human beings had inherent dignity because they had Genesis 1. They knew that marriage was a staple of society because they had Genesis 2. They understood all of these things and they knew that they were unrighteous and they knew that God was perfectly righteous, but they tried 
and they pursued to attain to God's righteousness on their own by keeping the law. Do you see here, let's pause for just one second. Do you see in these verses, or particularly in verse 31, that Paul is putting the onus of their unbelief upon them? But do you remember back at the beginning of chapter 9, where Paul puts the fact that they don't believe on God, that God's sovereignty and human responsibility do not cancel each other out, that they both exist, that he accounts for their unbelief on God's choosing and on their rebellion. He counts for both. He lets them exist. He sees them both as a reality. But it's not because Paul's a genius. It's because the Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words, affirming that both are the reality. So we have to acknowledge that. We have to see that in these verses. But then we have to ask the question, why? So verse 32 starts out with why. Why did they not succeed in reaching what they were trying to reach? Why did they fail? Because they did not pursue it by faith, verse 32 says. But as if it were based on works. There it is. That's why they missed it. It wasn't because they had the wrong God. It wasn't because they were wrong in their understanding of morality. It wasn't because they were foggy on what real righteousness was. It wasn't because of any of those things. It was because they went after God's righteousness on their own steam. Upon their own efforts, they sought to attain perfection on their own will and their own exertion. But what does Romans 9.16 say? It will not happen by any human will or any human exertion, but upon God who has mercy. They believe that salvation was achieved by their works. But we know that's not true. We know that no one is saved by works because we've been through the first part of Romans. Just to give you the greatest hits of Paul on this subject, chapter 3, verse 20 in Romans, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28 in chapter 3, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 30, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we know the truth. That's the gospel, and they choked on it. That was always the gospel. It wasn't as if Paul sprung it on him. We didn't realize anything new biblically in Romans 3 and 4. Remember, how did Paul prove his case as to why salvation is by faith alone and has always been that way? Who did he appeal to? Abraham and David, the first ever Jew and the greatest ever Jew. Both of them saved by faith. That's how he made his case which is exactly why we can't unhitch our Old Testament from our Bible. This is why we have to be so precise in our study of the Scriptures. See, for whatever reason, it seems easier from our perspective, not from God's perspective, but from our perspective, it seems easier or more likely that those who are just godless pagans, people who are just living in for, for the world, or they're living off in some jungle worshiping the trees, it seems easier from our perspective, or at least more common, that they believe in the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ a lot easier than people who have grown up in church but never actually placed their faith in Jesus Christ. 
that why it seems easier or more common from our perspective. And that was a fact that Jesus confirmed himself. In Matthew 21, 31 and 32, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, you Jewish leaders. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Think when you heard the truth, you didn't believe it, but you know who did? Those tax collectors and those prostitutes. Those who knew I'm clearly outside of the bounds of God. But those who believe that they are, those who think that they are, those who are encultured that they are, they don't believe. Jesus said that. A similar stupor exists for us in the American South. There are plenty of people walking around believing that because I, I walked an aisle at some point or I raised my hand at a youth event or I felt sad about bad things at one time and then Jesus kind of mixed in there that I'm now saved regardless of if I have any fruit in my life, regardless if I love the people of God, love the word of God or love God himself at all. If I can just point back to a fuzzy moment, then I'm saved. I mean, how does that make us any different than the Pharisees? Those guys had the Bible memorized. Their, their life and breath was God and God's things. The right worship, the right order of society, the right family structure. They lived and breathed that. And God says, tax collectors and prostitutes are getting in before you. Because they believed. When the message came, they believed. that We, we can't just say that, well, you know, there's people down here and they just have, they believe that there is a God and that this God has a son and that son is named Jesus. That that mental assent to the existence of God and the, the proposition of Jesus, that that saves you, that doesn't save you. That doesn't save you at all. The Pharisees believed that God existed. They held the Bible in high esteem, but they did not get saved from their sins because of that. The only way that you are saved from your sins is if in repentance you turn from sins to God, submitting to his lordship in faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's how you're saved. That's why we have to be precise in what we believe because the Jews that Paul's talking about here had the Bible and they had the truth. We have to be precise in what we believe because life and death hang on it. Charles Hodge, the great Presbyterian commentator of two centuries ago, said, let no man think error in doctrine a slight impractical evil. Not that big of a deal. It's just a slight thing. No road to perdition, perdition meaning judgment, has ever been more thronged than that of false doctrine. Error is a shield over the conscience and a bandage over the eyes. It blinds you. It misleads you. So why did they miss it? Why did the Jews miss it? Verse 32 continues. It says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is why they missed it, because they tripped over it. That's why they stumbled over it. Paul refers to their errant view of salvation as stumbling over the stumbling stone. And where does he get this terminology? He goes back to the Old Testament, goes back to Isaiah. This is Isaiah again, Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. Remember months ago when we started the study of Romans and we said, Paul's not going to have an original idea in the entire book? Because he's not. All he's doing is pulling from the Old Testament what God's already said. That's why we can't unhitch our Bibles 
our, our New Testament from our Old Testament, but because we have an incoherent New Testament if we have no Old Testament. We need the whole book. And what he does here is he combines Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16 to make this verse. God was saying that he was going to put, intentionally, going to put a stone in the path of these people that they're going to stumble over. They were going to stumble over the stone I am calling the stumbling stone. That's what God called it, and that's what God did. And it says, what does it say? The stone is a he, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In the stone. Who is that? Who is the rock of salvation, the rock of ages? Jesus Christ. Jesus is that stone. Why would Jesus be offensive? Why would Jesus make somebody stumble? He's the one thing about Christianity that everybody seems to be okay with. In a sense, yes, but in a greater sense, no. The Jews did stumble over it, and you would stumble over it if you, weren't, if you were still blind to it and still deaf to him. But if your eyes are open and your ears are open, then you can see that. The reason why they stumbled over it, because coming to Jesus is humiliating. There's no way around that. It, it is humiliating. No good thing you've ever done actually matters in saving you. Nothing. That, in fact, Jesus is going to tell you when you come to him that you've never done anything that even is good. You've never done anything good. And what you're going to have to do in order to be saved by Jesus, this rock of salvation, is you're going to have to leave all your achievements all your accolades and all your awards behind and come to him empty-handed like a beggar from a family of beggar beggars in a nation of beggars. That's what you're going to have to do to receive the gospel. There's no other way around that. When you, when you plead with Jesus to save you, and when you do plead with him to save you, he will save you. When you do that, and, it's, and, and now you're on the other side of the cross walking in sanctification, you'll have nothing to brag about. You have no pride in anything you have not achieved anything when you have been given the righteousness of God. You've achieved nothing. You're just a benefactor of what Jesus has achieved on your behalf. And that's exactly why boasting is excluded. See also Romans 3:27 and Ephesians 2:8 and 9, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Why is salvation by grace alone and faith alone so that no man may boast? No one can brag, no one is proud. You took a divine handout and you salvaged none of your pride in the process. That's, what, that's why Jesus is offensive. Can you see now why they stumbled over the gospel? Why do you stumble over anything when you're walking? You stumble over it because you don't believe that it's there. Because if you saw it and it registered, you'd walk around it. You stumbled over it because you're walking according to a lie. You're walking according to not, what's not really there. You ever been through your own living room in the middle of the night and some kid moved the ottoman? And then you stumble over it. What do you do? Oh, I was, should have been walking according to the light. Should have brought a flashlight to light my path and guide my heart so that I could see the ottoman in the ways. No, you're grabbing your shin, writhing on the ground and cursing your children because they moved it. They've offended you. You stumbled over it because you were walking dead straight ahead, believing there is nothing in my way. I am on the right path. And that's what God is saying about the nation of Israel and anybody who rejects Jesus Christ, that that's the reality. You were jolted by the fact that everything you've been believing and everything you've been ordering your life according to is a lie. That's what Jesus says. That's what the gospel clearly makes true to us. See, men and women are willing to accept the Jesus Christ of their own invention 
and always have been and always will be. If I can invent Jesus, if I can customize my own Jesus, I'll take that one. But men and women perennially reject Jesus Christ as Lord in the scriptures as he's revealed himself. Because that's the one who saves and that's the Jesus that matters. But if by God's grace, you get over that offense and believe in that rock and it will only be by God's grace that that can happen at all, not by any action of your will that you get over that offense and get over that stumbling and you believe in that rock, then you won't be embarrassed when the last moment comes. When you stand before God, that's what it says at the end, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You will not be embarrassed. You will not be found a fool having put your faith in something that cannot support it. That's what Paul's saying when quoting Isaiah, because you need to know who this rock really is. The people are stumbling over. Psalm 118, 32 prophesies saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stumbling stone that we kicked and cursed and got mad at and threw it away, that's actually the cornerstone. That's the foundation. Jesus is the foundation for everything heavenly. He is the cornerstone. Cornerstone in Jewish architecture is the stone that everything rests upon, that buries or carries the weight of the entire building. That's who Christ is. He's the foundation that will never crumble under your feet. He's the rock upon which the wise man builds his house. And what happens when the rain comes tumbling down and the floods come up? The house on the rock stands firm, does it not? That that children's song pulled out of Matthew 7, that Jesus is that rock. It's a picture of our faith in him, that many stumble over him, many are offended by him. We know he's the cornerstone. And when judgment comes, and judgment is coming for eternity, that those who are standing on that rock will stand for eternity. Those who are upon that rock will remain for eternity in heaven. Peter uses the same lingo, the same language, describing these things, talking about a cornerstone and what Christ's role is in that. In 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8, he says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, now he quotes Psalm 118, 22 that we just saw, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Israel's present rejection of of Christ is entirely consistent with God's plan of redemption because nothing can happen outside of God's plan. Peter says it was destined to happen. Nothing can happen outside of God's plan, otherwise he wouldn't be God. And God is always consistent with his word. His speaking is his doing. So that we have to ask ourselves in conclusion, where are you with Jesus? That's what this whole passage has been about. Are you stumbling over him to your eternal ruin? Are you dragging behind yourself a wagon load full of your good works saying, I know what you did on the cross, Jesus, but let me show you all that I've done too. Are you doing that? Are you indignant to the fact that if you're going to be saved, it will mean that you have taken a handout? That you contributed nothing to it? Does that bother you? Are you clamoring for notoriety for the good things that you have done? Because if that's you, if those things describe you, then friend, you are stumbling over Christ. You have slammed your foot into him and now you're offended and mad instead of submissive 
and receptive? Or are you building on him in faith? Do you come to him empty-handed at the foot of the cross with nothing in your hands you bring, but to the cross you cling? That's it? That's all that you have is nothing? Pleading for mercy? Do you weep over the fact that your sins is what put Jesus on the cross? You did that? Do, Do we weep for that? Are you standing on anything but Christ alone for your salvation? If you are standing on Christ alone for salvation, then you have not stumbled over the stumbling stone. You are standing upon him that will last for eternity. And here's how you can know. A quick question just to get right to the heart of the issue as to where you are with Jesus when we begin this conclusion. Where are you? Let's say there's a hypothetical situation where you die and you stand before God outside the gates of heaven and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that? If you answer that, and in any way in your answer you appeal to anything that you have done, then friend, we need to have a conversation about whether or not you are in the kingdom. Because if you say, well, I've, I, you know, I've gone to church, I've tried to do good, i tried to go do right by my family, and i tried to order myself kind of according to what you laid out, and, and I did my best, and I was at Sundays, and all that stuff, that is a question, that's an answer that only opens the door to hell. It doesn't open the door to heaven at all. The only substantial answer, the only answer that is acceptable in the eyes of God is when he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? You say, you shouldn't let me in. But I do know that you did send your son, who is very God of very God and truly man, and he died for my sins the sins that I rightfully committed and rightfully was placed under your wrath. He died for them. And you said in your word that if I put my faith in him, in that one, I cast all that I am on him. I'm only asking for mercy. I'm not asking for justice in any way. You said that if I do that, then I will be saved. And so that, that's my only hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's all that I have then that is the answer that God responds to. That is the answer that God says, welcome into my kingdom, good and faithful servant. So what we're wrestling with in the book of Romans, and we have been since chapter 1 and we will be till chapter 16, is the question of righteousness. Whose righteousness matters? Yours or Christ's? Whose righteousness justifies? Yours or Christ's? Whose righteousness saves Yours or Christ, it's not yours. Your righteousness doesn't matter and it doesn't save you and it can't make you just before God. But Christ's can, and it does. And it is acquired, it is attained by those who do not seek it. But what does it say? A righteousness that is by faith. That's how that righteousness is attained. And it will be given to you. So I pray that if you've never wrestled with this and none of this has made sense to you or it's brand new to you, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is too late, to quote from the scriptures. Consider today. Think today. Stay glued in your chair until you've come to some conclusion. And if you can't figure it out on your own, and you probably won't be able to, come and talk to me. Come and talk to somebody in our church desperately wants to be a part of you coming to know Jesus Christ in a saving way. Hear the free call of the gospel this morning. All who come to him who are weary and heavy laden will find rest. Let's pray. To find out more, visit us at tombaubible.church.